Y'all, please take a seat. Well, welcome to church, y'all. Hey, we're so glad you're here. Sincerely. Uh, my name is John. I serve as pastor here at the Springs, man. If it's your first time, welcome. I can remember my first time walking to church. After a long time, I actually came. I drove drunk to it. I sat in the back row. But I can remember looking on people, right, and seeing that they had a joy, a sense of peace that I didn't have in my own life. And I pray as you come, as we continue to excel, as all of us are worship leaders, you'd find that in us because this is something we really do care about. If you're coming to hang out with us, where you're finding us right now is we are journeying our way through 1 Thessalonians. We're calling this series, as we're looking at this book of the Bible, we're calling it Goals. The reason we're calling it that is because Paul, he's writing this letter to a church. Paul was this big-time church leader. He's writing this letter to this church plant he'd kind of started. Right? It was in modern-day Greece. He'd gone and he'd hung out with them for, people think, anywhere from three weeks. It's probably closer to three months. And then he went traveling on. He went from Thessalonica, which was the town, and then he walked his way, and he ends up in Corinth. About a year later, he wrote back this letter in response to some news he'd gotten about him. You see, this church, this growing body of believers there in Thessalonica, they were being faithful. So for me and for you, the reason we're calling it goals is we want to remind ourselves, hey, what does faithfulness look like in our lives, our individual lives, as well as the body of Christ? Anybody have any idea where we are in the text or know where we're going this week? Yeah, a couple people giving some whoops, because here's what's up, y'all. Guess what the topic is today? Sex. Yeah. If you want to leave, I'll try to pray again, and you can go as like eyes are bowed, or uh, heads are bowed, excuse me, eyes are closed. Where we are in this, if you come to the Springs, we, we pick a book of the Bible. Now, we'll jump around at times, but generally, we'll pick a book of the Bible, we'll read it, and we'll turn right. What that means is God is in charge of what we teach that next week. And what does God want us to talk about? A Christian view of sex, purity, sexual morality, all those kinds of things. Here's what my job is today. Sex is a gift from God. He gives good gifts. He's the giver. He created it. He made it. He is for it so many times, so many times the church. People have positions like mine. We come and we make it this taboo, negative, broken topic that if in your life there's any hint of it, you better not tell anybody. Here's what I want to share with you today. My job is for that not to be true, but what this text will show us is sexual sin. And as you'll see through my life, it's, it's going to be an honest, vulnerable talk. Right? As you'll see through my life, it is serious. As you'll see through this text, it is serious. But the backdrop I want you to see it through is through God's intended design where he sets it up, man, and it leads to intimacy when used well. But before we jump into it today, I, I want to tell you a story that, man, as I encapsulate what I think we're going to talk about today, it really does remind me of this. Uh, so me, when I went to college, I'd grown up in what I would call a church-attending home. I had great parents. My dad trusted Christ when I was about 13. I started engaging with what I was hearing. I viewed the relationship with God as a, as a rule list. Do this, don't do this. Here was my problem, though, all the way up through college, and, and yeah, through college. I couldn't stop doing the things I wasn't supposed to do, right? So, so for me, so for me, what that looked like, since fifth grade or so, I'd been addicted to pornography, in, into high school, inappropriate relationships with girls, to where I come to the end of school, right there, the end of high school, and I can remember thinking, I am God's continual letdown. I can't get it together. I can't try hard enough. And all my friends seem to be having all this fun, doing all the stuff I'm not supposed to do, and I'm just missing out. So God, if I'm not good enough for you, I'm done trying. Go off to college. It was pretty easy for me to leave behind any form of a Christian, what I might call ethic or identity or culture, 
right? So I, I went to school, and I can remember as a freshman there, I left it all behind. I can remember a guy, my freshman dorm, invited me to a Bible study. Now, I, I knew enough of it. It's like, yeah, no, I'm still a Christian. If you want to ask me, yes, even though I have this weird, awkward rejection of God, I wore an ohm pendant. I was weirdly kind of getting into like Rastafarianism because it's just this eccentric. I was just confused, right? But I go to this Bible study this guy invites me to. It was on my freshman dorm. We ended up hanging out. We became friends. One of my closest friends throughout college, I lived with him for three years. Right? He took me to this. Well, hey, here's what happened. He had this kind of weird, pseudo, messed up view of God, Christianity the same way I did. You know, we ended up, we rushed a fraternity together. Fraternities aren't bad, but we went there for the wrong reasons. And I can remember, you fast forward, eight months, start of our sophomore year, we just moved in the fraternity house, we go to throw a party. I can remember my buddy, the one who invited me to the Bible study, right? At that point, he and I were both technical virgins. What I mean by that term is everything but. And I say that with nothing but uh, godly regret. Um, went up through that stage, and I can remember there was a night over there, and we're all on the same floor in this fraternity. My room was kind of at one corner. His was at the other and I can remember a friend coming to me and saying, hey, hey, my buddy's name, saying, hey, hey, your buddy's going to finally lose his virginity tonight. He's going to finally become a man. And I can remember there, and I was in a state of mind that was kind of out of it at the time. But I remember thinking, I got to stop him. I got to stop him. So I come out, I walk down this hall, his room's down here, and literally 10 guys from my fraternity are standing outside the door celebrating him as there's a girl on the inside. He'd come out to get a condom. He'd come out, and i try to come, and literally, I'm like, Chi, don't do it. This isn't worth it. Don't do it. And I can remember, like, literally, a couple of my buddies laughing. They literally held me back. Like, they held me back. And there was a point where they saw, even that say, hey, I was serious enough of, hey, I got to get to the door. I come, I get to the door. He stands there. He's got what he needs. He looks at me, and he says, I'll be fine. Closes the door. Away he goes. The next day, I saw him, and I can remember asking him, man, was it worth it? And there's so much confusion, even my faith at the time, to think, well, that's what you can't do, but all of this you could do, and it's okay as long as you just preserve this. All that's broken, and we'll talk about that today. And he looked at me, and he just went, eh, My fraternity brothers thought I was crazy. They thought I was crazy because I had this warped up, messed up morality, which was, but there was this weird line that I somehow drew in the sand. And I absolutely stood out like a sore thumb. Hey, years later, I would come not to care as much about that line. And by God's grace, I was married with technical virginity. But it wasn't because I chose it. It's because God put provision and protection in my life in a kind way. But even that morality I wanted then, over time, you know what it did? Devolved. Here's the reason I start with that. In a way, I didn't even understand because I was so confused. It wasn't until five years later I became a follower of Jesus Christ where I realized God loves me and his love pays the penalty for every wrong thing I've ever done. The moment my buddy walked out of the apartment and asked for that, this was all the times in my own broken relationship with him I'd sinned against him. He loved me and he'd forgiven me. It wasn't until years later I'd figure that out. But here's what was true, even in the moment of my confusion where I go to the door and my friends think I'm crazy. What's true is Christianity's approach to sexual morality is crazy. Christianity's approach to a sexual ethic is revolutionary. It's different and it changes things. And what I'm going to appeal to you and remind myself of today, man, God has called us to be revolutionaries in this area of our life. Right, so today we're gonna see how God has called followers of Jesus Christ 
to be revolutionary in their view and approach to sexual morality. The first thing that happens whenever you start like this, you get, you get two things, two ideas popping in people's heads. One, in particular, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what can happen to you is what can happen to me. There's like huge guilt and shame. And you start out by thinking, oh, dear God, not this. Why does it always come back to this? I pray that through the end of this, what you do realize is, man, it is serious. But where sin goes deep, grace goes deeper. The second thing that people tend to think about is they start with this like guilt and shame mentality, which I want nothing to do with that this morning. The second thing they tend to think about is, hey, we're making a big deal out of nothing. We're making a big deal out of nothing. So I want to do is I'm going to spend a little extra time in what I would call the introduction this morning. And I want to share with you guys how I don't think we're making a big deal out of nothing. I don't at all. As many of you know, right, Hugh Hefner started Playboy. I hope you don't know this. 1953. He had this philosophy where he knew before that pornographic images, he now set to, how do you make it classy? And that idea begins to come forward. What comes in the 60s? The sexual revolution, right, which has continued even today, which you could epitomize it as this. You're not free until you are free sexually. Sexual expression is a pinnacle of love. It's a pinnacle of pleasure. It's a pinnacle of life. You're not free unless you're free. And through that, as I think back, as I've studied this week, here's six ideas. You don't have to remember any of these. Here's six ideas that I think culture, right? People outside of what I pray is the church we just accept these in a weird way that's true. We would never fully agree with it, but we kind of agree with it. Sex, what is it now? Sex is something that's purely physical. It's, it's biological. You've come, right, and I'm not going after all this, but you come from a tapeworm, you progress without morality. Why add morality into it now? If you're an animal, fulfill the urge. It removes any component of emotional or spiritual anecdotally, you know that's not true in your own life. Sex, it's recreational. You wouldn't deny yourself any other form of recreation, so why deny that? Sex fulfills desire. So to not fulfill desires, it's to leave you repressed. And I can show you where more and more people will say repression leads to danger to society. Instant gratification is always better than delayed gratification. This theme of abstinence, the theme of abstinence is archaic, it's cruel. The only way sex is to be demonstrated is through safe sex. I'm not here to talk about the way the public school system equips our kids, but I have an opinion I'd love to talk to you after. But what I am here to talk to you about is the way parents equip and prepare any kid, the way parents equip and prepare themselves. Final one, a great sex life. It's the pillar of any healthy relationship. How do you get better at it? You practice. Practice makes perfect. What do you need to find out before you get married? Is there sexual compatibility? Man, that is absolutely what is taught in a broken way what I've lived here, let me keep going. So knowing then that that is the general pervading uh, outcome of a sexual revolution, the general ethic, if you will, that's pervading there. Here's just some of the things that I found. You, you can say that these are negative or positive, but here are statistical facts. 85% of males by the age of 21 today will have engaged in sexual intercourse. 81% of females by the age 21, we'll have engaged in sexual intercourse. 70% of couples live together before marriage. Infidelity rates, 36% of men currently admit to of having an extramarital affair. 21% of women currently admit to having had 
a physical extramarital affair. Now, affair, that, that word, don't think just intercourse, kind of broken out across what we'll see, sexual morality, a spectrum there. The Economist, the Economist is one where the, the data, the most relevant data we have, they have, goes from 2000 to 2006. The rate of STDs has dramatically increased, apart from safe sex, safe sex, safe sex. What has continued in correlation? I'm just trying to show you, we have an opportunity to excel still more, church. Chlamydia has risen by 98%. You ever think you'd hear chlamydia at church? No? Yeah, welcome to the Springs. I know, nobody's coming back. <laughs> this is not how you grow a church plant, by the way. But what are we gonna do? We're just gonna teach God's word. So hear me, I'm gonna keep building. We're gonna, we, I got two more big weird words. Syphilis, it shot up fourfold. Even though right around 2008, we thought it was going to be eradicated. Gonorrhea was on decline from 2000 to 2009. Since then, it's risen 48%. Pornography, the information I'm about to give you these two, it's gonna come from, and I'll give you any source you want. I have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to sources. Right, the first one I'll come, truth about porn, a secular group combating pornography. The other one, secular group, fight the new drug. Truth about porn, here's what I learned. From 2008 to 2011, exposure to pornography of kids under ages 13, 10, fifth grade, 11, sixth grade, 12, seventh grade. For me, it was fifth grade. That was back before a smartphone. Exposure of kids under 13, it went from 14% to 49%, obviously with the growth of the, of the smartphone. You cannot deny technology has an ability to amplify good, redemptiveness, righteousness. You can get more phenomenal Bible teaching now than you ever could before through the exact same tool that can drag my heart to the worst that I can seek. Brain scans of men watching porn the part that deals with the brain, it's not the part of the brain that connects with people. It's the part of the brain that connects with objects. Pornography is literally the dehumanization, the objectification of others. And I'm not throwing stones at you, man, because it starts right here with me. 50 studies, over 50 studies have proven the link between pornography and sexual violence. Fight the new drug, the other company. It's proven that watchers of porn are less loving, more critical, and they have more difficulty performing sexually. Porn leads to a 300% increase in the chance of infidelity in marriage. 88% of pornographic material depicts violence and aggression, most often towards women. Hey, there's a big debate right now, and I'm not entering this debate, about whether or not America has a rape culture. Here's what I would tell you, right? Because statistics, you, you can go either way, but here's what I would tell you. Starting with my generation, you have a generation growing up to positions in adult leadership who oftentimes they've been assaulted in the same way I have for years of years, the dehumanization of the soul. As we'll see, it's an assault against the soul. And so what does that mean? You have a generation coming forward that battles more anxiety, more depression, coming positions of, to positions of leadership now where what happens? The individual crumbles. What happens when the individual crumbles? The relationships crumble. The marriages crumble. What happens when the marriages crumble? The family unit crumbles. What happens when the family unit crumbles? I'm putting for you, society moves in a direction. God does not want, and I pray you don't either. You don't need to know any of that, but here's what I'm telling you. That's the current, that's the direction, that, that is the ethic, and God Almighty, in love because of Jesus Christ, redeemed from sin, forgiven and free, says, revolution. We're going another way, another direction. Our relationships can't look the same. Our marriages can't be the same. The way we parent can't be the same. 
None of it can be the same. God wants to free people from the pain of that. So as you hear that, remember, this talk has nothing to do with guilt and shame. In Christ, forgiveness of sins, guilt and shame is a tool of the devil. But man, I'm telling you, even in my life, and I have been free by the grace of God from addiction to pornography, I don't know how long. I try not to count days. I think that's unhealthy. But a long time. God, keep me faithful. But man, I'm telling you, we are called to be revolutionaries. And a Christian approach to sexual morality is a revolutionary sexual ethic. Revolutionary. Where are we going to look at this? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going verses 3 through 8. Where we are in this, again, I shared some at the beginning. Paul, he's writing a letter. But he's writing a letter to these people that have come out of a Greco-Roman culture, this Mediterranean view of God. So what does that mean? Their sexual ethic, by all means, was likely far worse than ours. Because here's what they didn't have. They did not have, in many ways, America, that you could argue, centuries of a Judeo-Christian ethic restraining evil on behalf of God, acting as salt and light. They didn't have that. Their environment was where if you are means, or if you're a man of means, you had a wife that you likely rarely had sex with. If you had slaves, they were your property, you could have sex with them. You most likely had mistresses. Right? It was, it, it was absolutely normative and accepted in many ways. Men to be with men, men to children. Right? Pagan religion, because you've got to remember Thessalonica, you could see Mount Olympus. It was 78 miles away. They could see it. It was the first major city. What that means is all the Greek deities, priestesses, priests, they'd come, they'd gather there. There was a form of pagan cult worship where it was viewed. You could go and be with a priestess a temple prostitute. And by being with her, you are communing with the deity. So what I mean by that is Paul is writing this letter to a group of people who he went, he's recently told them the good news of Jesus Christ, saved by grace through faith. You're not marked by your sin, you're marked by the Son of God. And yet, likely, many of them, their, their freedom, their fight against sexual sin. We're talking last week. Like, like their mistress heard the same news that Paul had told in this town, and it was revolutionary. Wait, are you saying and believing that? Here's what that means for me. Paul's approach was revolutionary. Our approach my approach, by the grace of God, must be revolutionary. I'm going to read the whole text, and then we're going to work through it. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, I'm gonna finish reading it. I'm not gonna expound on this point later. He just said, as we told you and solemnly warned you beforehand. People argue about whether or not the Apostle Paul spent three weeks all the way up to what some might say three months in Thessalonica the first time he went. That means Paul, straight out of the gate, the first thing he led with, proclaiming the gospel, he starts talking about intimacy and its divine role and the way God had made it and given it and how people like them and people like me corrupt it. And then right here, it's Paul, he's shifting and he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. The first theme he leads with out of the gate. The first topic 
He says, this is what I mean by growing in godliness. He talks about sexual intimacy. Or what is often, as we see here, immorality. I'm going to pick it back up. Verse 6 again. And then finish in 8. That no one's transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger and all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Jump with me now. Let's just read verse 3. Back at the top. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you, see that word, abstain from sexual immorality. The first component, now, now you could argue there's more than the three we'll talk through today, but the first component of a revolutionary, of a Christian approach to section, sexual morality is that we have been called to abstain. Some of you, right, we all kind of know what that means generally, but I'll just break it down. Refrain from, avoid, have nothing to do with. That's, that's the general theme. And why is it Paul putting that out there? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You could do a whole series right on this phrase. People so many times, especially younger folks, and I've asked this question, what is God's will for my life? It's rarely practical, but it always has moral implications. What God spends a tremendous amount of time caring about is, hey, here's what's my will. Look more like me. Sanctification, it means to be set apart, to be holy. Paul's pleading with them more and more. How do I grow to look more like Jesus Christ and less like me? And in pursuit of sanctification and in pursuit of holiness, because there's a God who loves me, how do I do that? The first things he leads with, here's the standard. Here's the revolutionary call. Abstain. What, what does that mean? That means I can't flirt with I can't rationalize. I can't have a, what I would call, relativistic view. Well, hey, I'm not doing that. So it's okay that I'm doing this. No. The revolutionary ethic is abstain. I can remember dating Taylor. And I'll share more of this story throughout. Taylor's my wife. Um, the, the first, I don't know, we dated two years. First 12 months, 14 months, it was great, man. There was no sexual sin in the relationship. Obviously, that was a huge part of my past leading up to it. I, I'd never thought, I never thought I would be able to stop looking at pornography, stop masturbating. I didn't think it'd be possible. And I can remember trusting Christ, still having to fight the exact same thing, but learning a principle that we'll talk about in the next point. But I can remember coming and dating Taylor and knowing I'm not supposed to date the way I've always dated. I'm not supposed to pursue her the way I've always pursued. And I can remember, she and I, we had this rule. Now, I'm going to lead with, I wish I could use this rule as an example of, hey, you can imitate me as I imitate Christ. And for a season of dating, you could. But honestly, I broke this rule and sexual sin entered that relationship. Right? But there was a, hey, I'm not crossing the threshold of your apartment. It's, it's weird, right? I remember saying, I'm not crossing the threshold of your apartment because here's what I knew, what was true about myself. I knew what was true is, hey, if I cross that, I can remember where the couch sat and then the TV. Here's what likely happens. We go, we watch a movie. Movie starts sitting there. Next thing that happens, I put my arm around her. Next thing that happens, we're kind of awkwardly like half horizontal cuddling type thing where all of a sudden I've gone from vertical to horizontal with the daughter of the king. And for me, for us, the greatest way to avoid the moment of flee from it, make no provision 
for it. Don't cross the threshold. Abstain. Abstain. Let's keep reading. We're going to read verses 4 through 5 now. We're going to look at the second point of a revolutionary Christian ethic. Verse 4. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. Imagine Gentiles, non-believers in this context, who do not know God. Each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The second component of a revolutionary Christian ethic, a revolutionary Christian approach to sexual morality, control. Control. But, but I'm going to nuance this a little bit for us. First thing you got to think about as we look at this, the first thing it says is that each one of you Sexual purity is not something that's just for pastors. It's not something that's just for husbands. It's not something that's just for wives, for dads, for fathers, for sons. It is for everyone. Everyone. No temptation has overtaken you, has overtaken me, except what is common to mankind. That's the beautiful thing about how, like sometimes people will come and they'll say, John, how can you say things like that? Like, how can you use the word pornography? Well, one answer is the word for sexual morality in your Bible, if we're reading from the Greek, it's pornea, porn. Paul's saying it, so I'll say it, right? But the second thing is, because I can come and up here, and I'm not saying your life looks like mine, and I'm not saying my life looks like yours, but you know what I know is true? You're busted up just like me. It may be different, it may look different, but no temptation's overtaken me except what has been common to mankind. So that's why it's for each one of you. And it goes on, know how to control his own body. It's the theme of mastery. For longest time, men, I remember being in college towards the end of it thinking, if I just stop looking at porn and I stay away from girls, my life will get better. And I tried really hard. Control. <coughs> Failed. Failed miserably. Why? Because I never saw the connection of what control was linked to. Right? I never saw right there in verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The only reason control can change, the only reason the approach to sin can be revolutionary in the heart of a Christian is because I have something now that I never had back then when I was just trying hard to stop. I know God. He changed me. I didn't have to be better. I didn't have to do more. He changed me. I was a schmuck, and he made me a saint. I was opposed to him, and he brought me near. I was foolish. I was disobedient, and I was led astray. Yet he calls me a son. You know what I began to control that changed my revolutionary approach to a sexual ethic? I started with, I know God. So for me, life, where that began to change was when I stopped thinking things like, just don't do this, just don't do this, just don't look at porn, just don't go see that movie, just don't go hang out with her, just don't go talk to them. All the don'ts, don'ts, don'ts. And I just dwelled on the brokenness. And then in knowing Christ, I realized... The way I learned control is I continue getting to know the God of love. And as we'll see, even through the next part, with his spirit, it began to change me. Let's read verses six through eight. Six through eight. That no one transgress and wrong. Some of you may have the word defraud where wrong is. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And we've told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Remember, he leads with right at the establishment of the church. He preaches the gospel. And then what does he go after? Their sex life. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. That's why he cares so much about. You're not 
a Gentile anymore. You know God. You've been set apart. You've been sanctified. You've been made holy. May that be a reflection of your life. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Which, by the way, this is another thing I wish we could spend the whole time talking about. The only reason by the grace of God I am not enslaved and addicted to it that actively thinking through, hey, how do I step outside of my marriage or flirting with the line or watching movies or doing whatever? The only grace is his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is the promise of, as he calls you in holiness, he empowers the holiness. But the third thing we have to consider, the third thing we must recognize as we talk about a Christian revolutionary ethic is caution caution. Paul, he uses the word here, I have solemnly warned you. Caution was the best word I could really do to describe what these three verses really feel, what they're really meaning, what they're intending. He's not hiding behind a few different things that a lot of people want to hide behind. He doesn't hide behind. The Lord is an avenger of these things. We have been made in the image of God. God calls all people to be his children. <clears throat> Sexual immorality is never a victimless crime. You, you see that. That's why there it says, hey, that, that none of you transgress. It means to take advantage of that none of you transgress or wrong. Defraud a brother. Brother here, people argue about, hey, is that in the context of just the church or everywhere? By context, I'd put before you, that's everybody, man. And if God has a standard for a Christian, you know he's got that standard for the Gentile right there. Why? He wants the Gentile to believe in the same son of God that he came to save him as he wants the one in the church to grow in a belief of it. There's a true reality as a Christian that one day God will address, he will ask me about the sexual sin in my life. The Bible says there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. I do not have to fear God. But it also says there will be a moment that because of that, I will feel, according to 1 Corinthians 3, a sense of loss. The Lord is an avenger in these things, and there will be an accounting, a judgment. Right? And that judgment can be, if I had stayed in that state and rejected God and died, I would have been apart from him for an eternity. But God is also the avenger of these things in the areas of my life now or where you go and I engage with a lot of people and you see the impact of sexual sin where God is the avenger and the essence of, he cannot bless sin. He loves you too much to do it. He died for it. He won't bless it. So oftentimes judgment comes and it's the removal of blessing. The afflicted conscience And through righteous discipline, him not, him not like actively punishing you. He doesn't do that. But in love, disciplining the way a father disciplines a child by allowing me, by allowing some of us, I have no doubt, to feel the weight of consequences from our sin. It's never without victim both to us as well as even in every consensual way to them. It's not without victim and the online, if you look at it there, guarantee, go look up and spend five minutes examining what the porn industry is like. The abuse, the drug use, the environment they take kids from, the age they take kids from. The Lord is the avenger of these things. He's not called you to impurity. That's not who you are, church. You're holy, He's so for sex. Y'all know this? Here's another verse in the Bible. Delight yourself. It's about to get a little weirder. Delight yourself in the breasts of your wife's youth. Y'all, the men kind of perked up. All married men. I know it's weird, but hey, here's what I'm telling you. Delight is a command. No one is more for a beautiful, divine 
redeemed, healthy, intimate, sex life in marriage than God. Who came to free you from the consequences, the consequences of my life of every time I stepped out of it? Jesus Christ. Who gives you the ability to honor it in marriage? His spirit. No one is more for it than God, but caution. If you disregard this, you don't disregard me. If this is your first time, you come and you hear me and you're like, okay, that was super weird, not coming back. Or if you've been here for a while and you say, okay, here, you're not disregarding me. You're disregarding God. And I assure you, God loves you, but he cares deeply for holiness. He cares deeply that I look more and more like him. There's caution to it. Caution to it. What are the three components of Christianity's revolutionary, world-changing, paradigm-shifting how do you change the entire perception of what college represents in American culture for many? Hey, go have a four-year party where you grow as a social experiment and then come and get serious about life, family, and work afterwards. You can begin by introducing the love of Jesus Christ. And I, I tell you, tell them about this sexual ethic. Because you know what is the predominant educator? What is the number one sex education class in the country? Online pornography. Church. Here's the other thing, too. The statistics show it's, it's just as active in the church as outside. There's no guilt and shame, but there is a call to revolutionary freedom. For freedom, he set you free. I want to be free indeed. And life in freedom. It's a blessing. Like a good conscience man, it is a gift. Intimacy with a spouse in a divine way is beautiful. Playing with it before, many of you may have heard, it's like playing with fire. Fire inside a fireplace, it's beautiful, brings warmth to the whole house. There's this natural connection to it where you can see it, you get around, you hear the crackling of the flames. Family circles up, they love it so much, hey, let's turn off the TV, let's have a night, let's make hot chocolate, and we gather around it. What does it do? It's promoting intimacy. You take fire outside of that. You take fire outside of a place where it was intended and meant to be. And what does it do? Brings destruction. It has brought destruction to my life. I'm not alone in that. God does not want it to bring destruction to ours. Not for impurity, but holiness. So here's what I want to ask. Here's a couple things I want to ask, Right? If, if the sexual ethic is because of a love for Jesus Christ, abstain. Because of a love for Jesus Christ, control. Because of a love for Jesus Christ, be warned. Church, and this may sound like legalism to some of you, so I'm just talking to those who say, Jesus Christ is my Savior. I, I, I see no situation where outside of your wife, your husband, you got any business seeing nude images. I, I, I like try to think about it. Maybe if you're like a physician or something like that, it's the best I got, right? You, you got no business outside of that. Many of us, we come and as we think about our kids, and hear me say, your kids, you need to go talk to them about this. We begin to think, Hey, I need to monitor access. I need to navigate what they're looking at. I need to check and see what they're doing. Men and women, here's what I'm telling you. Your age is very often irrelevant. How are you doing with unmonitored access? Like, are you so yielded to Christ, committed to following him, that when Jesus, in his first public sermon, he comes out and says, hey, in response to lust, it'd be better that you tear out the eye. It'd be better that you cut off the hand. Would you remove access? Would you stop flirting with the uh, Netflix? Like, this is convicting. Like 80 to 90 to 90, I don't know the percentage. 
90% of that, it starts with TVMA. Like what if we were a church where before we saw anything rated R, TVMA, and someone could argue PG-13, sure, I'm totally team that too. You stopped and you read Common Sense Review. And you looked at, hey, graphic language, nudity, where is it? I, I think I know what will happen to your TV viewing options. Same thing that has happened and continues to happen to mine. You don't get to watch that much. And it's revolutionary. You don't have to have that why. Why is Paul leading with this? Impurity destroys intimacy. Impurity destroys intimacy. It's true in my relationship with my wife. It's true in my relationship with God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So what is he calling us to? If that's true, you know what else is true? Redemption in that. Purity develops intimacy. Purity develops intimacy. Sex is meant to be something that brings about intimacy with your spouse, right? If you're here and you're dating and you're in a relationship, here's what you're creating. If you're fooling around physically now, a false sense of intimacy that if it hasn't yet, here's where it will lead to confusion, to hurt, to estranged clinginess, to what may likely be a changing in how your brain is wired and who you bond to. Impurity dismantles intimacy, but purity, it helps you connect with your spouse. It's designed to where when I made a pledge when I got married to hold my wife as a standard of beauty and I fight for that daily. But he helps me. And he helps me in my relationship with God. Why? He's called me. He has called me to be a revolutionary. The way I think about this uh, final thought is uh, first time I kissed my wife, right? So I didn't kiss Taylor for the first year and a half of dating. <laughs> hey, don't, uh, you're all laughing, but I, I'm all about to like go totally down in your head, right? Like key sermon ender, I'm gonna throw myself under the bus and rightly so. I, I, I did not kiss her, and I'm gonna clarify that in a second, for the first year and a half. It was super romantic. It was at Tam's Egg Roll, this sketchy little hole-in-the-wall Chinese food restaurant. It was right there. But here's what I want to tell you. I reached over. I saw my what would become bride. I kissed her on the lips. Felt nothing. A sense of remorse, actually. Remorse. Nothing. Here's, here's why. I'd allowed impurity to dismantle intimacy. I had a deeply intimate, emotionally, spiritually connected relationship with Taylor for about that first year, 12 months, 14 months, somewhere in there, and then sexual sin came in. And this is the, honestly the embarrassing part I don't want to tell y'all. So we had this rule, I'm not going to kiss you. I remember going to premarital counseling, like, yeah, we just want, if you guys decide to make out, I don't know, they used a bunch of weird Christian words, like canoodle, fondle, I didn't really understand it all. And I can remember being like, this is ridiculous. We don't even do that. We're not going to do that. And man... Months later, there I am. And the easiest way I could describe it was in the loophole sense of the broken cavity of my soul. I hadn't kissed her on the lips, but I'd kissed her neck and I'd kissed many other parts of her body that I had no business being near. But I hadn't kissed her on the lips. And that impurity, God wasn't punishing me I was forgiven and free in Christ. We'd had a season even before that where, man, we'd walked out, there's repentance, there's this relationship has to change or it's over. And if you're dating and that's where yours is, I'm telling you, it's at least that conversation. If not, hey, we should probably just end it. And man, I remember standing there and being like, John for months stole this moment. Impurity had dismantled, had hurt the intimacy. But here's what's also true. I proposed to her a couple weeks, couple months later. I don't, I don't remember. I got married to her, and by God's grace, with faithfulness in my soul, 
right, walked his faith. It was like imperfectly, but significantly different. Got married to her. And I got to pursue intimacy with her in a different way that it was in the way God designed it for intimacy, pleasure, yes, procreation, but commitment to one another in a physical representation of oneness. And I can remember thinking, thank God for my wife. Why was I allowed that moment? Even though I'd stolen a moment in the past, why did I have a moment then? The redemptive power of grace. Because Jesus Christ, before the moment, the other moment, he looked at me and he said, because you believe in me, forgiven and free, because you want to follow me, I, as your big brother, Jesus Christ, I'm going to send a helper, man. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to invade your heart. He's going to bring about change. Purity developed intimacy. Purity still develops intimacy. It is a gift from a good father in heaven. Y'all, I'm going to pray that we live that way, but I'm also going to pray. If you're feeling guilt and shame right now, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Father, I do, I thank you that it's because of you and you alone that there's any good gift or grace in my life. I thank you that I do not have to, as I come publicly, have a superstitious mindset, okay? Because I proclaimed and because there's been this significant season of freedom in my life that I need to knock on wood because I'm about to fall. Lord, we who are standing, take heed lest we fall. I wanna do that every day in my life. But God, I pray for the purity of my life. I pray for the purity of the lives of the people here. I pray we would not be enslaved to the guilt and shame of past sexual decisions. We would realize in you we are free, that we would come, we would let others know about it, and in confession we would find healing first in you and then with your body. I need your help to do that. We need your help to be that. Lord, you love us, and because of that love, may we be revolutionaries. I need your help to do it. We need your help to do it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, y'all... Thank you for letting me keep you a little bit later than usual. But man, I pray you go. You have a great week of worship. You know God loves you, and he's called you to be a revolutionary. See you all next week.